The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. There is a major, major hearing on Capitol Hill right now. Some tech CEOs defending Section 230 all talk about uh, malignant information, misinformation and the spread of that. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is talking right now. Twitter has been proposing an idea where users can choose from a series of algorithms supposedly created by groups outside Twitter. It's just an idea right now, but you can be sure that all of the CEOs will be proposing some sort of ideas so that they don't have ideas imposed upon them. So now to talk more about what we might hear today and the reaction to it, let's bring in Jim Anderson of Social Capital. And just for reasons of um, disclosure, we should mention that Social Flow is used by Bloomberg as well. So Jim, uh, explain to us first of all what Social Flow actually does. Yeah, we're the social marketing platform that many of the big media companies use to get their content out to Facebook and Twitter and other social networks. So, so we're very much the conduit through which a lot of that information flows. And, of course, reputable media companies, you know, reputable is, is I suppose, subject to some degree of interpretation. You know, your view of what is reputable may be different than someone else's. Um, use uh, these social platforms enormously. You know, we see about 50 million posts a year go out they get more than a trillion in annual reach so these are enormously important platforms for media companies and of course they're enormously important platforms for all kinds of messaging so you know it's interesting jim i guess one of the most fundamental questions is are these companies media companies specifically facebook and but also twitter and alphabet or are they just simply technology platforms for content well, they'll certainly say they're technology platforms, right? They don't want to be branded as media companies because that comes with a whole set of obligations, including perhaps not Section 230 you know, protection, which is what's being talked about in this hearing. And so that's been sort of a long running debate. And, and in fairness to their position, uh, you know, they, they don't generally create the content, right? What do media companies do? They create com- content. They typically take a point of view. They have editorial judgment, those kinds of things. And what Facebook and Twitter and Google will all say is, we don't do that, right? We largely don't create the content. We try to avoid being the, the editorial voice. You've heard Mark Zuckerberg say time and time again, we don't want to be the arbiter of truth. Now, there are certainly counter arguments to that and legitimate points on the other side, but at least from their positioning, they don't want to be viewed as media companies. Where are they in agreement? I mean, obviously there, but, but in general, when it comes to making arguments before the, the committee, where will they all sound like they're in agreement and working together, potentially even? And, and where will they differ and want to be very much obviously distant from each other? Well, I think where they're going to be together is they all depend on Section 230. Jack Dorsey's initial statement said, you know, Section 230 uh, is incredibly important and that removing Section 230 protections will remove content from the Internet. And I, I think you'll see variations of that same theme coming from all three. 
Uh, I think where you may differ is in terms of algorithmic feed. You know, I think Twitter has the opportunity to create a little bit of daylight between Facebook and Google because relatively Twitter tends to be more in the moment live what's happening right now, whereas Facebook and, and YouTube, which is the most uh, sort of relevant um, uh, part of Google to this conversation, tends to be more algorith- algorithmically driven uh, and it may not be as important that it happened five minutes ago. It may have happened yesterday. But if the algorithms determine that you might like it and it's relevant to you, they'll surface it. So I, I would expect Twitter to be somewhat less uh, defensive of algorithms and more willing to compromise on, hey, if you want to regulate something, then regulate the way the algorithm surface content. So, Jim, I understand why Facebook is testifying today. Twitter, these are social network platforms that really traffic in, you know, uh, news and content. I'm a little unsure why Alphabet is involved. Why, why do you think they're there? Yeah, I think it is mostly about YouTube. You think about the way people consume YouTube. You know, you, you open up uh, and watch a video, however you saw it. Maybe you saw it on a social network or somebody emailed or texted it to you uh, or you just discovered it. Well, there's a very powerful, you know, sort of following videos, other videos like this, uh, pain that shows up. And so what happens is you sit down to watch one YouTube video, and before you know it, you've watched 12 YouTube videos, right? And what those other 11 that you watched uh, are very powerfully chosen by algorithms that are incredibly similar in concept and in scope to what Facebook does, right? So so that, uh, hey, if you're interested in, uh, I'll just pick something law and order, then you may be interested in uh, this other type of content. And the problem that Google has run into is if this other type of content is, say, white supremacy, you know, they end up having algorithms that recommend content that's highly questionable. And the algorithms don't know, right? They don't exercise editorial judgment. So the algorithm just knows that you watched a, a piece of content like this. Other people who watch content like this would be interested in something related. And so they serve you up something that may be entirely inappropriate. Uh, and that even Google may ultimately decide is inappropriate and removed from YouTube. But it's very much a cat and mouse game in terms of keeping that, that questionable content off of the platform. So this is hilarious, Jim. They couldn't make contact with Mark Zuckerberg. So now that there's a recess in order to be able to continue the hearing on bad behavior shortly. But (laughs) how ironic is that? I mean, how how also how will that be read that the, the committee couldn't get in touch with Mark Zuckerberg? He wasn't available to speak to the committee on Capitol Hill. Right. Well, I mean, so, let, you know, we all sort of deal with Zoom, you know, uh, sort of. Issues. Well, he runs Facebook. <laughs> he does run Facebook. I, I understand. So, you know, I, I think what you, your question about how will it ultimately be perceived, is it just a technical snafu that's quickly resolved or, or is he off doing something and he just decided decided to blow off, you know, congressional testimony? That obviously wouldn't be received well. I, I would have to believe that, you know, he takes this seriously. He understands the importance of the Senate and Congress and regulation. So my, my guess is it's a technical uh, issue, but I, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, they're back. I mean, he's, yeah, he's back now. I guess they've they've uh, rebooted and he's back. So hopefully they can get started again. Jim, just wondering, you know, historically, um, in the United States, regulators, government has taken a very light touch to regulating big tech, and arguably that's allowed big tech to be what it is in Silicon Valley to be what yeah. it is, and with all the successes. Do you sense that that's changing? I think it's definitely changing. I, I think it's it's uh, 100% true. They have taken a light touch, and I think it's a very fair statement to say that's allowed for enormous growth, wealth creation. You know, these companies uh, are, are some of the biggest companies in the world now as a result, in part, of that light touch. 
But, you know, when a company gets to be, you know, near a trillion dollars in market cap or up, up in, in the two trillion dollars, I'll throw Apple in this mix. Obviously, it's a, it's a different kind of company, but it sort of certainly falls into big tech. You know, when you end up with market capitalizations in the trillion dollar range, you know, you're, you're almost government size at that point. And I think, you know, you get to, to be too big and, and have too many issues and too many problems and too many enemies, just bluntly, from a political standpoint. So I think it's clear both Democrats and Republicans have a very... Uh, high degree of anxiety and angst and even animosity against the tech platforms. The interesting thing is that they're almost diametrically opposed, right? Democrats think that the tech platforms are not doing enough to combat misinformation. Republicans think that the tech platforms are censoring conservative content. Those are almost exactly diametrically opposed. And so where you get into these real interesting questions is, well, what's the remedy, right? If you, if you want to revoke Section 230 protections and make the platforms more liable from a conservative perspective, then you're more likely to get somebody like Facebook and Twitter removing conservative content because they don't have any legal protections if they keep it up. And so uh, I think there's a very real risk here that, that somebody will actually make the situation worse from their standpoint um, if, if they're not very thoughtful about how these regulations are, are determined and, and enacted. Jim, what would you imagine will be the role of Twitter in public life if the presidency turns over? Well, I think Twitter will still be very important. I, you know, I think uh, everybody may take a breath and the, the, the pace of tweets coming from the president, I would have to believe, would be considerably lower. Uh, and, and in some ways, that's a negative for Twitter because, you know, you could argue that Donald Trump's presidency has done a tremendous amount to keep Twitter relevant. But I think Twitter, if, if you sort of got an honest view from them, might actually welcome the respite because it comes with a lot of headaches and a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems. So I, I think Twitter will continue to be very important. But I don't think you'll see, uh, say, for instance, President Biden, if he wins, uh, you know, making uh, declarations on Twitter, certainly not at the volume and in the way that President Trump does. Jim, I guess the ultimate concern for tech investors is perhaps some of these companies get broken up. Do you think there's a material risk that that could happen? Yeah, I, I would almost call it not just a material risk, but a, a likelihood. Uh, now, I think the real question is how and when and how, you know, how long does it take, right? This is antitrust uh, is a years long process. There'll be plenty of litigation. But going back to the size of these companies, it's hard to argue uh, Facebook, uh, Google, certainly Twitter maybe is a little bit of a different story because you know, Facebook is 60 times larger than Twitter, if you want to think about it from a market capitalization standpoint, the last I checked. So, you know, it's, it's unfair to lump Twitter into the antitrust conversation the way you would Facebook, Google, or even Amazon or Apple if you want to be more expansive. And, and I think every one of those four big tech companies faces a very significant risk of, of antitrust action and then either ultimately being broken up or reaching a settlement where they voluntarily choose to divest certain components to satisfy regulatory concerns. And, and by the way, not just in the United States. These are global companies. So you have to start thinking about the EU and other jurisdictions as well if you're uh, the CEO of one of these companies. And, and in my mind, it, at least to some degree or another, some degree of antitrust impact is inevitable on all four of those big uh, big giant tech platforms. Yeah, and I mean the EU is way far ahead in many ways, yeah. and you notice it when you you you, you uh, browse around on European websites. You get asked a whole range of questions about you know what what what, what information you want to give away, how many people can, you know can yeah. use it and pass it on, and so on. So yeah. it is interesting. But so we know that Mark Zuckerberg had the ear of President Trump. We know he wasn't going to tell us what was said in that room. Would he have the same kind of relationship with a different president? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I'm not sure he will. Right. I mean, you know, President Trump is a unique president at a unique moment in time. 
I, I think, if nothing else, for reasons of optics, President Biden isn't necessarily going to want to be perceived as cozying up to big tech. And, and then, you know, never mind what the specific personal conversations were in, in private. I think all, you know, big tech platforms, if given the opportunity to have an audience with the president, would choose to say, yes, why, why would you not do that? Uh, you know, I think any time you have the ability to advance your cause and help people understand your business and your position, you're probably going to want to take it. So I, I would not be at all surprised, again, if President, if, if uh, Joe Biden does win and become president, that you'll see a, a somewhat of a distance put between him and big tech in general. And, and then, you know, ultimately, we'll have to see how the Congress shakes out as well. Uh, you know, what, what their appetite is. A lot of, you know, what we see now is certainly inflamed by the election season. Um, once the election results are decided and we're past that, then we'll find out what the real appetite is for, for real you know, heavy lifting of legislation and regulatory reform. You know, Jim, this seems to this maybe even this hearing seems to have really come about in the wake of that New York Post Hunter Biden story. Why do you, why do you think that got so much traction? Well, I think it's uh, Twitter uh, you know, handled that in a very aggressive way. Uh, some people would say mishandled that, right? I mean, that's a matter of, of perspective. I think what you see, though, is that the tech platforms, Twitter in this case, are, are super sensitive to the idea that there's an October surprise that will come out. There's an information dump of unverified information. Yes. Uh, there's an impact on the election. And before anybody has a chance to really vet what was going on, you know, it's affected the election and, and uh, you know, the, the tech platforms were at the center of it. I think that's the concern. Of, that, of what right. happened, yep. at least in the view of some, back in 2016. And so they were super primed for this, and so they acted very quickly. But in many ways, they overreached, right? They, they suspended the Twitter account of the New York Post. And mm -hmm. whether you agree with the New York Post's editorial view or not, they are the New York Post. They are generally considered to be a reputable uh, news source. And so when you have a tech well, platform blocking yeah. the Twitter, Twitter handle of a you know, news outlet, that's a pretty significant move. Yeah. Right. Jim, we're going to have to leave it there. Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Markets selling off the excelling as accelerated. We have the S&P, the Dow and NASDAQ all off about 3%. Let's bring in Sarah Ponzik, Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. Sarah, it seems like the selling has accelerated here. Uh, we're seeing bigger losses. The selling has accelerated. If you look across the major averages right now, uh, towards the lows of the days, a couple of technical levels that some investors are watching. For example, if you were to look at the S&P 500, take a look at its 100-day moving average. We broke through that 50-day not too long ago, just a couple of days ago. Till today, we broke through that 100-day moving average, which stands just at 3306 or so. So we are still trading below it. Uh, some investors, including Matt Maley over at Miller Tabak, are looking closer to the 3230 level or so uh, for support should we need it. We still are a ways away from that level. But if we were to break that level, there would be concern because we would then 
break the trend line since March. But as you mentioned, you look at the major averages, the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, they are all down more than 3% at the moment. Uh, the worst day for the S&P since early September when the correction really first began, uh, which was really led by tech stocks at the time. But while equity selling has really picking up, you could say. What's interesting is that we still see pretty moderate gains in treasuries. We're not seeing a huge rust to safe haven assets. You look at the 10-year, for example, right now at 76 basis points, not flat on the day, but not seeing too much movement. So at least in the bond market, you haven't seen the safe haven rush pick up as we have seen equity losses accelerate throughout the morning. Let's also bring in Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina, you know, we, we, we thought that the tech hearing would be the big event of the day, but it turns out the markets are becoming the major event of the day. Is this something that we should start getting concerned about? Well, I think that they're actually related issues. I mean, the market is weakest in the tech space, um, the communication stocks and tech stocks sort of leading declines along with energy. So I think that the, the two issues are somewhat related. Um, you know, as Sarah mentioned, back in September is the start of this correction, and it all started with tech stocks starting to sell off. And we have seen a tremendous amount of rotation since September. Even the early October rally was certainly suspicious, given that it was led by utility stocks. So, you know, I think that you, what you have here is a case of tech stocks are losing a little bit of their luster. They're expected to be relatively weak in the third quarter. Uh, you've got um, some serious regulatory pressures dampening the outlook for some of the communication stocks, some of those uh, big bellwethers that are related to tech. And at the same time, we've got a little bit of loss of macro momentum that is weighing on the market and a lot of election jitters. So it's kind of a confluence of events, but I do think that tech is still at the center of the market weakness and has been since early September. Gina, how much of this is just kind of the pandemic numbers globally going the wrong direction? Uh, I don't know how much of it, honestly, is the pandemic. I know that that's an easy sort of <laughs> culprit to point to. And certainly the fact that the pandemic is reaccelerating, case counts reaccelerating, once again, does have some people nervous about what that may mean for the economic outlook. But I do think that for the most part, it's unlikely that global economies shut back down like they did in March. Um, instead, there do appear to be alternative measures for dealing with the virus case count load moving higher, and, and they don't all um, necessarily result in a massive economic shutdown. I think instead, it may be related to the fact that case counts are moving higher, we don't have a vaccine yet, and fiscal policy seems to have stalled. So we don't have a fiscal policy package to sort of backstop the economy and help us reaccelerate that macro momentum in the face of case counts going higher. We're not likely to reopen more in the face of case counts going higher. So it is, it is a peripheral effect, but I think it's more about the fact that, you know, the global economy did recover pretty substantially from March into college September, and that recovery has slowed in the weeks since. Um, and that slowdown has investors a little bit nervous, particularly without any sign of support coming uh, from the fiscal policymakers. Sarah, we're looking across asset and, you know, it is, it's pretty across the board today. It's just a general feeling of mal malaise, you know, given everything that uh, Jeannie Martin-Adams has said. 
Right. I mentioned that we aren't really seeing a huge shift in the bond market. But if you look at currency markets, for example, we see the dollar higher today. We see the Japanese yen higher today. Those are uh, the two best performing G10 currencies. And the yen is the only major currency that is higher against the U.S. dollar. So we are seeing this flock to safety across FX markets a little bit more so, even if we're not seeing it completely reflected in the bond market. Granted, when we look at the bond market, you look at the 10-year around 76 basis points or so. I mean, these are still extremely, extremely low bond yields. There had been some talk about movement back up towards 1% just last week. So it's amazing to see how quickly this narrative has really flipped, how quickly it has changed. Uh, and now we just see yields stuck back in the range that we've almost been stuck in all year long uh, with uncertainties ahead. Gina laid out many of them, uh, including the election, including the macro tailwinds kind of coming to a head at the moment. And when we think about rising COVID case counts, yes, we likely won't see a lockdown like we saw earlier in the year, but there is a question about come 2021, we think about the rebound that we saw in the equity markets, how many investors were looking to 2021 and saying the market is a forward-looking mechanism, things will get better. Well, how much better can they get if we don't see total improvement, if we don't see treatments, vaccines, uh, whatever you need or deem necessary to see an, a full economic recovery? And Sarah, I'm just looking at the, it's not just the equities here and, and uh, uh, bonds and currencies. I'm just looking at oil right here off over 6% today. WTI crew trading about $37.10 a barrel. To me, I guess that suggests that that market is saying, future demand, it's not as good as we thought. Right. That's exactly right. We have seen oil just lodged around that $40 a barrel, barrel mark, not all year long, but ever since that catastrophe, when we saw prices go negative, shoot back up. And we have since kind of just been hovering around that level. If you look at WTI crude oil right now, down more than 6%, that's the worst day since September 8th. Uh, that day, we did see crude oil down more than 7.5%. But like you said, it doesn't seem as though the global demand picture is improving, at least. And on that front, for example, if you bring it back to stocks that do require plenty of gasoline, for example, you look at airlines, uh, you look at cruise lines, you look at Carnival, for example, down 10% at the moment, Norwegian down more than 8%, airlines also taking a hit. So big picture, like you said, that global demand picture just certainly doesn't look to be improving. It's not heading in the right direction. Gina, healthcare is a funny one these days because I'm seeing a lot of, you know, negative comments about healthcare and the healthcare industry. And yet we have so many of these companies working so hard on things like pandemic, you know, uh, solutions and so on. Why is healthcare being so uh, maligned? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually wrote about this this week because healthcare earnings are starting to roll out and healthcare fundamentally is one of the best positioned sectors in the S&P 500, some of the strongest revenue and earnings growth currently and expected to continue to produce pretty strong fundamental growth going into 2021. Yet healthcare is discounted relative to consumer staples and trading at its largest discount relative to the S&P 500 since its 2009 low. And I think that that's reflective of policy sort of dominating um, the outlook for healthcare stocks. Even in the face of the pandemic, investors are very concerned about what policy is going to look like. Obviously, with the changes that we've had recently at the Supreme Court, there's a lot of concern about a rollback of uh, Obamacare passed years ago and the impact that that may have on the insurers. There's also some concern about a blue wave taking over Washington and the impact that may have across the healthcare spectrum, spectrum, but in particular on the pharmaceutical and biotech companies, uh, and especially even more targeted there on the prices. 
of their products. So there's a tremendous amount of concern just from the policy perspective. And it's not, it doesn't even stop there. You've got to roll into tax policy as well, because healthcare companies do practice inversions. They have a ton of cash held overseas. They have a lot of multinational revenue. And some of the Biden proposals on tax would um, sort of indiscriminately dampen the outlook for healthcare as well as technology stocks. So there's a lot of concern from a policy perspective uh, impacting healthcare, and I think that that's dominating the sentiment toward that sector, resulting in tremendously low valuations in comparison to the rest of the other index. Hey, Gina, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Gina Martins-Adams, she is a senior uh, strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Sarah Ponzik, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us as well. Thank you both. We appreciate your thoughts on this very difficult day in the financial markets. Huge uh, sell-off across the board. Equities down about 3%. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash green festival. Let's take a focus in a little bit more on technology. Certainly center stage here today in Washington, going to be center stage tomorrow when we have over a trillion dollars of market cap reporting uh, earnings. Nobody better to talk to than our friend Dan Eyes, Managing Director, Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan and I are still trying to recover from Penn State's loss at Indiana last week. But Dan, let's try to move forward here. What are you seeing here in the world of big tech and earnings? It's going to be a huge day tomorrow. It's huge. And really, it's a fork in the road situation for tech stocks. You look at Microsoft, there are strong numbers, stocks selling off. There's really a risk-off trade, and I think you're seeing it with election backdrop and a lot of valuations that have moved significantly higher. You know, I really view tomorrow as a seminal day for FANG stocks. I believe fundamentally we're going to see strength across the board. And I believe this sell-off here is short-lived in my opinion, as the fundamental strength in tech continues to be there. That's why tomorrow is really what we'll call it the World Series, uh, the <laughs> Super Bowl uh, for tech stocks. <laughs> well, after last night, I guess uh, I guess there's no harm in doing that, right? Dan, just were you watching the hearing this morning? Just very curious if anything stood out to you. Well, I think it's a little more of a grandstanding, but to some extent it really – it, it kicks off what is going to be the Beltway versus big tech battle. And, and this is not going to soften in terms of momentum. We're going to see this more and more as we get in 2021. A blue wave you know, potentially sends antitrust as well as even Section 230 issues more in the forefront. And I think it just speaks to right now there's a target on the back attack. And I think when you see social media players like today, you're really starting to see them laser more in on 230 as it seems reforms is clearly on the horizon in regards to who gets in the White House. So, Dan, assuming we go that path, what do you think the risk is to the business model of some of these social media platforms? And I guess we'll throw Alphabet in there as well, given it's YouTube uh, product. How do you kind of frame that out? I think it all depends on what the reform looks like on 230. And it's going to be a battleground, you know, depending on 
what we see from from both aisles. But I do believe it's a business model risk, and I think it's something where, you know, it could change from an advertising perspective what you see on the social media side and from a content perspective. And and I think this is something that investors, you know, if you think about just the overall risk against big tech, just forget fundamentals for a sec, it's been viewed as contained background noise, shrug the shoulders. I think now as we start to get in and through the election 2021, it becomes a more pronounced risk potentially to the business models. Here at social media front and center, but especially when you look at Google and from the DOJ front, they're really in the eye of the storm as well as Facebook. Are any of the companies more attractive because of the sell-off? Look, I think, you know, when you overall look at sort of big tech, what we're seeing here, I think you almost have to put into two two different sort of buckets. I think there's ones with fundamental catalysts, and now it'd be ones with Apple and Amazon. I think you'll see that tomorrow. In terms of Amazon, the e-commerce cloud, as well as Apple on 5G, what I believe is a super-cycled iPhone 12. But when it comes to social media, I mean, this this right now is a risk, and that's why fundamentals become even that much more important to show that advertisers are you know, not leaving the platform, and that's really been the tale of two cities the last six to nine months. Despite the headwinds and despite potential black eyes, you've really seen companies like Facebook thrive. Yeah, it's it's amazing, Dan. I mean, even during this pandemic, um, we've seen digital advertising hold up pretty darn well. It almost seems like you know, this might even accelerated some of the migration from traditional media to digital media. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, I think components of it, but no doubt Google in particular has seen some headwinds. And I think that has been contained relative to Fang names where you've seen strength across the board you know, from Netflix to Apple to Amazon. And, and, and I think right now, if you look at the valuations, you've had paradigm moves. You've had re-ratings. But now the fundamentals can need to continue to sort of see beat and raise type stories going into next year. And I, I'll just use Microsoft as a good example. Those are about as robust of a quarter that you'll get. And they gave strong guidance and stocks off because investors, it's a risk off trade. Stocks had a huge move and they wanted more. And I think that's going into tomorrow. You know, it's really tech doesn't move higher without saying, and I'd say the market doesn't move higher without saying names. That's why tomorrow is really a, almost a Fort Sumner moment between the bulls and the bears as we go into, you know, earnings as well as through this election cycle. Dan, where is the next round of innovation going to come from? Which of these companies is best positioned to, you know, blow our minds in the coming years? Well, I think it's Apple. Uh, To me, when I think about 5G and ultimately when I think about AR and what they're doing on wearables, I think that's sort of the next level of innovation. When I think about what's coming out of Apple, even though many would say the innovation is obviously in the rear view mirror and they continue to prove it wrong, I think when I look at Apple, and of course on the EV side, you know, it's really been just Tesla. Now you look at GM and others, that disruptive technology, I think EV, you're going to continue to see that as really just a massive opportunity, and you're seeing more of a blurring of the lines between technology and automotive and some other traditional technology players. But just if you compare, look at Microsoft compared to SAP on enterprise. It just shows cloud 
either a winner or a loser. And I think it just shows that line in the sand is continuing to, to become just that much more evident in this world attack. Dan, given what's going on here from the regulatory front as it relates to advertising, social media platforms, do you expect Amazon to continue its push into advertising? It's really become a big, big player in digital advertising. Yeah, and I think for them, it's been a great strategic move, but a slippery slope as well as it becomes more and more from a regulatory perspective front and center. And and I think it's something where when you look at an Amazon, it's all about monetization. They're continuing to monetize. Their ecosystem is, is really as good as any company's ever done. And, and I think that's, that's really what Bezos continues to drive at Amazon. But no doubt, regulatory, especially what we see on the DOJ side, it's going to really not just limit acquisitions, but really limit some of these companies' strategic moves into other areas where they've been free as a bird to go into. And Amazon really being a good example where I think you're going to start to see the wings clipped a bit, regardless of what happens in the election cycle. I just want to briefly ask you about these insurance disruptor, uh, I guess they're being called InsureTechs, Root Root Financial going public today. Is that an area that's ripe for disruption? And if so, why hasn't it been already? Well, I think that's a good example where you're starting to see more and more technology or sort of next-gen waves hit what I'd say is traditional industries. And I think we're seeing on the e-finance side a renaissance of growth, not just in the U.S., but even in China with the IPO and others. And I think this is really going to be, it's almost a wild, wild west in terms of uh, disruption of business models. And you're, I think you're seeing on the VC side more funding, especially in this area, a lot of private companies going after you know, what could be just a massive opportunity on what I view as sort of the next-gen finance side. Hey, Dan, thanks so much. We always appreciate your thoughts. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Analyst at Woodbush Securities. Hopefully our Nittany Lions will have a better weekend this weekend coming up, Dan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.